civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. GoSimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. Okay, Boomer, why can't you love me as much as you love to share memes about minions? And okay, Boomer... Why can't you hold me as close as you hold your belief that climate change isn't real? And, okay, boomer, why can't you carry me like you carry your handgun in public? I want to say I'm okay, boomer, but boomer, I'm not okay. That's an extract of a song parody that got shared on the TikTok platform and got lots of traction amongst the young generations. In a more aggressive way, we've also seen banners with the slogan Eat the Rich during some of the climate marches, inspired directly from the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who famously said when the people shall have nothing more to eat, they will eat the rich. According to Paul Kershaw, professor at the University of British Columbia, there is an undercurrent of generational tension that exists at this moment in a way that we haven't seen in the past. The old people who the millennials are upset with are not leaving the stage, are not retiring anytime soon, have a lot longer to go, have the money, have the political power, the voting power, the job power. And there is an imbalance and a sense that boomers are willingly ignorant in refusing to get fired up about climate change or wealth inequality. So let's hear today from a woman activist who since retirement has been fighting daily for system change at a grassroots level. Our Simon today is Karen Ellis. Karen founded Mendit Australia with her husband Dan. They offer their help to repair and mend, building capacity to upcycle and promoting a circular economy culture within their community. With Karen, we talked about the myth of recycling, the need for coordinated repair movement, wisdom affecting societal change as an individual, man-woman divide when it comes to repair, and finding one's voice. Hi, Karen. I'd like to start with knowing a bit more about your roots. And I was curious to know where you grew up and what kind of childhood you had. I grew up in a middle ring suburb of Melbourne. I came from a family that had been probably lower middle class. My mother left school at 13. My father left school at 14. They did the very best they could. My father went into the fire brigade and my mother stopped work once she had children. They had come from families that were poor families, perhaps dysfunctional families. I had learning difficulties at school that can sort of set you back a little bit. My childhood wasn't perhaps as happy or as idyllic as maybe family would have imagined. 
I feel it's time to share with others who may have had similar experiences. What was your relationship with nature? I love being out. I guess that's away from school and you're riding your bikes and climb trees. My father being a shift worker meant that my mother would close the door and we'd have to stay outside and entertain ourselves under the porch. We'd hold concerts and sing, dance. So in that way, it was happy. However, there was always something missing for me. How did you personally become aware of climate change? Climate change came to the fore in the last 10 years with the activism work that my husband and I decided to engage in as seniors around our reuse and repair. You start getting into it once you start exploring all these issues and then you realise there's just so much more that you haven't been exposed to and you want to know more for future generations. You want to show them that you have done something. You've mentioned it with your husband, Dan. You've created a community of menders and repairers. Could you tell us more? Mended Australia is Danny and myself. We love the whole idea of community and what we had to offer was the ability to speak out and speaking out about reuse and repair and the right to repair the things we own. We decided to call ourselves Mended Australia because we were going to go and travel around Australia and do some mending and repairing and increasing awareness of repair. Pre-COVID, we went around Victoria and have, over the last four years, travelled to 85 community repair events. What do you enjoy the most in the act of repairing? The community connection is really important to me. Having a voice, raising awareness and calling out of a lot of issues and uh, highlight those issues on social media can be very tiring and very demanding. So it's really lovely to get out into the community face-to-face -face and interact with people and help them to fix their things, maybe imparting some wisdoms as we sit across the table. It's a joy. And to go into communities that are like-minded We are embraced in other municipalities around Victoria and our own municipality, unfortunately, is not sustainability and culturally inclined the way we would like it to be. However, when you're an activist in your local community, you feel like you're a little bit isolated. That's why the face-to-face -face is very important because there's lots of talk and lots of banter and joy involved in the face-to-face. There's a commercial repair sector, and it's actually a well-established part of the global economy. In 2015, the market size for just professional electronic and computer repair in the U.S. was estimated to $20 billion. Why do you think there's a whole ecosystem of non-commercial repair that emerged? What are the motivations People don't want to be throwing stuff away that has been useful to them in their home. That's the main motivation for a lot of people. 
there's just more of a sense of we've just been too wasteful and we don't want to do this anymore. And so the news is getting out there about these free community repair events and these people that will tinker with these appliances or textiles. Of course, saving money is another motivation for some people about climate change and CO2 emissions, but that doesn't come across as, you know, a really big thing. But I think it's certainly in people's minds. Also keeping these skills alive. I think there are people out there that do appreciate that the people fixing for them have these skills, that they do respect And by bringing in something to be fixed that's of use to them, they're sort of respecting these people's skills and trusting these people that they know what they're doing. That mightn't even be conscious, but I think it's there. The sense of community, there are people that come into community repair events that may not have anything to fix, and maybe that's community connection. We fix for all those reasons. What are the barriers to the expansion of the fixer movement? There are barriers. You can't do it because it's high risk and you're only volunteers. What about insurance? Where are you going to do it? And you have to pay for a venue. But hang on a minute. We're doing this for the community for free. We're not going to get much in donations. So that's why these events really need the support of local agencies with resources to offer them up for free. The community repair movement isn't a coordinated group here in Australia. And if they were combined, they could perhaps broker better insurance deals. Some other barriers are more to do with intellectual property and also the fact that some goods are simply not repairable because they are built to not be repaired. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Australian situation with rights to repair laws. Compared to the US or Europe, Australia seems a bit behind. In Sweden, for example, people get a tax deduction if they fix their TV instead of throwing it out. And it's the case for every electronics that they have. Why do you think it's difficult still now in Australia to, to progress the right to repair legislation? How far do you think we are from fixing those policies? We are definitely lagging behind. We are very focused on recycling as the answer to everything here in Australia. Recycling is not the answer. Recycling is not enough. The industry, it wants to make money. So, of course, it wants our governments to be focused on recycling. Victoria has just released its circular economy plan titled Recycling Victoria. As we know from Europe, their circular economy plans are factoring repair and reuse and reduce and the right to repair. As you said, recycling serves the current economy, which is use and then throw away and then recycle if possible and buy a new one. So it serves that economic loop. That linear economy and that growth economy, they're just the drivers. That's how we're living. There's just not that bigger picture. I'd like to think it involves everybody getting together and shifting this. The people really do have a huge part to play. 
I do have hope that even two people in a community affect small change, affect some legislation change. We're very active in writing formal submissions to federal and state governments. Those submissions go on the public record, which is important to us. Protest movements definitely have their place. I think it's all of us. Don't discount people at the local level. It just could affect change. The repair movement, the do-it-yourself homemade movements that we've seen emerge in response of the climate crisis, but also the COVID situation, highlights and question our relationships with work and with time. The way we've designed our entire lifestyles does not favor the capacity to repair, the capacity to do by ourselves. As seniors in the community who think quite deeply about these things, we could have those conversations because we have so much to offer to share experiences, share wisdoms. We know what it's like to be juggling all these things. Women can feel excluded of the repair environment. Typically, repairing and fixing being from traditionally more seen in the men realm. Do you still observe on the field when you go in the community a clear dichotomy? Absolutely. And I don't think our education did us any favors there. There may have been some women out there that had an opportunity at school to do workshop classes, but not many. It was basically girls go off and do home economics and boys go off and do woodwork. They stopped all of that in Australia. Sewing machines went out and typewriters went out and woodwork classes went out and academia was focused upon and tech schools closed. You do see that at repair cafes because most of the fixes are of our generation, the baby boomer generation. We were the last to have those sort of classes in school or being taught by parents at home. A lot of it stopped in the 70s. Women, girls were encouraged to pursue academia and go to university and not follow those home economics courses. I'm not saying everyone, but a lot were. There is that dichotomy at repair cafes. The men will be doing the traditional electrical repairs, mechanical repairs, and the women will be doing the textile repairs. It was a concern of mine. A few years ago, I went and did a certificate four in building construction. We had to build an actual home on site. It was through VU locally. It was a great course. And then the government stopped it. And now we have this shortage of these courses. Women should be able to know how to not necessarily build a house, but should be able to pick up a drill and know what to do with it. When I have the opportunity, I on social media, I show that I'm actually doing those things. It's really important to encourage women. Another thing that we've done here locally is ask questions about why the men's shed, this wonderful facility with all these wonderful tools and equipment, is just for men. Of course, the men's shed movement was formed so men's health and mental well-being could be supported. The tools and everything were secondary. Why are these places on days when the men aren't there not being used for women to be able to come in and learn these skills? 
I've been called out and harassed because I've been vocal on that. Misogyny is alive and well. We've got a long way to go with this very practical issue. It's not only men that need to go to the men's shed to learn to cook because their wives might have died. We've also got to think of women whose husbands may have died and they need to know how to use a drill. We need to change our mindsets, definitely. Still an issue, this men-women divide. I've been sharing with you two articles before this interview. So the first one is by Global Witness Organization, and it's called Defending Tomorrow, the Climate Crisis and Threats Against Land and Environmental Defenders. Basically, they published a report highlighting that an increasing amount of activists are getting killed due to their activism. If not killed, we are seeing as well a criminalization of activists globally, whether it is on refugees, whether it is on environmental laws, and Australia is no exception. How do you feel when you see that dynamic? That's an evil place to be going. 122 people, I think I read, in 2019 have been killed for speaking up and speaking out. That really hits me in my stomach because I do similar, in a way, speak out locally. And I know that when you get misogynistic, harassing comments on social media, that you feel threatened and abused. Also, when you get isolated out of your community, when you're ignored because you're perceived as a troublemaker, people like whistleblowers, when you hear about those sort of people, bullying as well is of uh, grave concern to me because my experiences of being bullied, it's so very, very wrong and it's why we have to speak up. We have to have a voice. And these people know that. These people that have died knew that. I would say many of them may have been prepared at that level in those countries with dictatorships and corrupt police and corrupt military. I think they would have known that their lives would be at risk. Even in my situation here locally, I know that my general well-being is at risk for what I do. Do you fear that, well, it might invite people to not say anything? In your personal experience, are those bullying ever question your commitment to these topics? Have you ever thought of not speaking out anymore? No. Sometimes I put my hands up in the air and I'll say, I don't even know why I bother. But really, it's just a throwaway line. I've always been outspoken, even from my childhood. I was always the one that supported the kids that were being bullied in the school ground. I just couldn't bear to see something like that happen in the workplace. I did the same. I would just have to say something if something was not right, no matter the consequences for me. And that's a very, very high price to pay because you do understand why people put their heads in the sand and don't want to know about it. It's a lot easier. They feel okay with that, I'm quite sure. But when you feel the way you do, and I think a lot of whistleblowers feel this way, when they stand up to just within them to know that not saying anything is a worse feeling for them, is a worse 
consequence to actually standing up and speaking out and knowing that the consequences will be social isolation, people that you thought were friends that would stand up for you, putting their heads in the sand or just going away and not supporting you or family not supporting you. All of those things I've experienced and it would be worse for me to not say anything. The second article I shared with you was published by the Canberra Times. It's more Australian-focused. It's regarding the bushfires that happened last year. It's called Bushfire Survivor Calls on Fossil Fuel Companies to Pay for Disaster Recovery. The victims of the bushfires are asking the fossil fuel companies to compensate some of the costs of the disasters exacerbated by climate change. What do you think of that move to highlight the role of fossil fuels into climate change and for them to start being accountable? I was very pleased. It's a bit like call out for the multinational companies manufacturing these products and take back schemes and things like that and not paying their taxes. These multinationals just have so much power and so much influence. Governments are really insignificant. I'm a bit with Noam Chomsky, who says they want you to think governments are all evil, but really the fear is from the corporations. People can, through their vote, etc., demand that governments govern better. The real fear is the corporations, and we need to really stop blaming too much on the governments and looking at the corporations who really want to be invisible and they really are working to make governments the focus of the fear. How do you keep being hopeful for the future? As my mother would have said, I'm very willful. I'm very determined to have a say, to raise my voice. That is just so much stronger than anything. And I would just so encourage the women out there to speak out, speak up. You can find that if you're passionate about something, you will find your voice. So I guess there's women at the moment, daughters of mothers in aged care that would never have spoken out and they're on television now speaking out saying it's not good enough. So I think when something just grabs you and you feel like you want to speak up, that's the time because there is always hope. Do you have a book, something you, you read recently or a film or something really that inspired you to recommend to our listeners? One of my favorite books is by Dr. Catherine Wilson. It's called Tinkering, Australians Reinvent DIY Culture. Catherine Wilson is a professor at Monash University. It was a great book because there's not a lot written on tinkering. She wrote the theory and evidence behind that and she case studied 30 plus people to find out about uh, people who tinker like Mended Australia. I like a quote by Caitlin Johnson. She said, don't show me a young rebel, show me an old rebel. It's an actual poem and it's worth a read. I have a quote that I wrote and I'd like to share it with you. I can lead you and I can follow you but I will not wait for you to get out of my way because I don't mind leading and I certainly don't mind following people that uh, are worth following. But anyone that stops what you have to do or is a naysayer, they really do need to get out of your way because you can't achieve what you need to achieve otherwise. Thank you so much for your time, Karen. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you to Alicia Vanzil who edited this episode. The full transcript of this episode is available on gosimon.org. Thank you.